Hey, John, I hear that you have a number for us to kick off this week's show. Well, do you want my favorite number or a number that's relevant to uh, the work that I do on energy? Relevance is totally overrated, but uh, let's, uh, let's stick with that. 100 million, Chris. 100 million dollars to be exact. Right. And this is not just a number that happens to be in the range of numbers that Dr. Evil uses in the series of, uh, um, it'd be funnier if I remember the name of the movies. Austin Powers. Austin Powers. Thank you. Now, $100 million, Chris, is the amount of money that the Winnesheek Energy District assumes leaves the county every year in northeastern Iowa and the small town of Decorah, Iowa, uh, because of buying energy from outside sources rather than getting it from the local community. Now, I'm guessing most of that money does not go to widows and orphans. Uh, You'd be right about that, Chris. A lot of it goes to utility shareholders and to the purveyors of fossil fuels. Well, I don't necessarily have a problem with them, but I would sure like to see that that money sticking around in in Decorah and uh, those communities a little bit more. Well, I can tell you a little bit more about that later, Chris, but maybe we should do some introductions. I'm John Farrell. I'm the director of the Energy Democracy Initiative here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And who do we have uh, eavesdropping over here in the corner? Ah, Brenda Platt. I'm the head of the Composting for Community Initiative, and I'm in Washington, D.C. And Brenda's also a co-director, and one of the reasons that ILSR is still around, because she's done the unglamorous work that needs to keep organizations like ours going for many, many years at this point. I'm Chris Mitchell. I run the Broadband Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And I think we're going to talk about small towns today and, and, and in particular how they're innovative and maybe don't get the credit. I, I think people sometimes think of small towns as just parochial and, and boring places, but safe places to go. Um, and they're much more interesting than that. We're going to be getting a lot of mail from small towns this week after that comment, Chris. Just remember, it's Christopher at ILSR.org is where to direct your complaints if you live or grew up in a small town. But uh, yeah, there are a lot of interesting things happening in small towns. I'm excited to talk about some things around energy. I think Brenda's here to tell us more about composting programs. But Chris, I was interested in starting with you, hearing a little bit more about what is it that small communities can do around broadband? How can they get more affordable internet access to their community? Well, first of all, let's let's be clear that, that I have tremendous respect for small towns. And in fact, the more I see between small towns and big cities, boy, um, I, I just really love small towns. <laughs> um, the uh, First of all, and this isn't the community I'm going to be talking about, but you may be surprised to find out that the first broadband internet access in all of America available on a citywide basis Glasgow, Kentucky. We actually made a short film about it called The Birth of Community Broadband. But that was probably the first place in the entire, all of, all of North America where you could get broadband at any address in the city because of some really sharp individuals that had done some really great work. Um, but uh, the community I want to talk about today is actually Ammon, Idaho. It's one that I, I've talked about before. And, and I'm just curious, Brenda, have you ever heard of Ammon, Idaho before outside of me talking about it all the time? Not outside you talking about it. Are you familiar with Idaho Falls at all? Sure, a little bit. Brenda has tremendous geography. John? I I thought we were talking about broadband, not potatoes, Chris. So Ammon is right outside of Idaho Falls. Uh, And I actually don't know how many potatoes they grow right there, but I actually, my aunt has friends with with, uh, lentil farmers, and I know there's a lot of lentils that come out of Idaho. Um, So let's stay away from the stereotypes and stick to the facts, Mr. Farrell. Um, 
So Ammon is outside of Idaho Falls, and this is a part of the country a lot of people aren't familiar with, but they have created a new model for deploying fiber optic systems that is, is I, th- I find it fascinating, and it's really practical for anyone, um, so much so that we're seeing lots of other communities from uh, communities that are smaller than Ammon, which has about 15,000 people uh, just outside of Idaho Falls, um, sort, of, sort of a bedroom community to Idaho Falls previously, um, all the way up to Spokane, Washington, we've seen them talking about doing something similar, and they have 250,000 people. Ammon is, um, is a real trendsetter, and, um, and I think there's some characteristics that, that uh, there's a reason that this is starting in Ammon and not elsewhere. I was hoping you could back up for a second, Chris, and talk about why it is that communities across the country are trying to do broadband investments. Why are, why are communities getting into this business uh, and not sticking to the bread and butter of you know, water utilities and roads and that kind of thing? John, it might surprise you to learn that many Americans are unsatisfied with their uh, broadband service because it comes from very large companies that are unaccountable to them. Um, and- Barely audible gasp of surprise. <laughs> You know, Brenda, you're there in Tacoma Park, one of the more, um, you know, it's a wonderful place to live. You have density, you have people that have a lot of money. And I'm guessing even then you have what, two options for home internet service, probably Comcast and uh, and, uh, Fios? Yeah, maybe we have RCN too. So you have three options, which is almost unheard of in the United States of America. Many Americans, a majority, in fact, a slim majority, have uh, only access to one option uh, for Internet access or no options. So um, what Ammon was setting out to do is like many other communities, they want to make sure that there was a marketplace where people could have choices and not just be taken advantage of by whatever company happens to have a, a monopoly for service there. And in Ammon's case, it actually didn't start off being about what uh, the was good for residents. It was more focused on actually the municipal services because they needed to get broadband to different parts of the city. For, for instance, they had a swimming pool and the cost to connect the swimming pool uh, from the incumbent carrier was much greater than the cost of them doing it themselves with fiber in which they would basically have no recurring costs. Whereas if they went with the big company that was there already, they would have not only had to pay a one-time fee, but ongoing fees to keep it going. So they built it themselves and they continued building it themselves to connect areas all around the city related to their own needs. Then businesses wanted to start being connected. So they started connecting some of the businesses. And then when residents were really clamoring to be connected, they came up with a new model using improvement districts, which is a, a very common way of financing infrastructure. We made this video that is called uh, The Virtual End of, of Cable Monopolies, in which we explain exactly what Ammon's doing. It's got some really great interviews, um, tremendous reception from people that have seen it. It's actually helped to convince many cities around the country to uh, to consider their options. Um, but one of the key points I wanted to make is that in Ammon, this was something, it was an idea. A lot of this came out of a person, uh, Bruce Patterson, who um, had started with the city as a plumbing inspector. And he had really good ideas. He really got into this and he decided to um, apply himself to it and and ended up pioneering this new model, in, in part uh, with a friendship and partnership of some other local private carriers and people working for some local rural carriers that we're all just working toward common purposes. That's something that we see happening in small towns across America. So I, I was hoping, Chris, that you could do a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to take a moment to flog Chris's work here, which is to say that if you want to understand more about communities that don't have a lot of choices around internet access, his 
initiative here has published a, a wonderful map as part of the fighter on net neutrality to highlight where it is that communities where, where you have competitive access to broadband, where you have choice and the places that you don't and where rules for net neutrality are really going to matter. So I just want to encourage you to find that um, either through ILSR.org uh, or through the Muni Networks website, muninetworks.org. Um, the other thing I was curious though, Chris, you know, what I understand is that a lot of communities that have gone down this road of doing their own fiber networks, their own broadband networks have tried to finance it out of the revenues that come from uh, the initial subscribers. So you're, you know, you kind of, you either borrow money or you're using the revenues from your initial subscribers to build out the network. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about how improvement districts are used for other kinds of improvements. Like what might people be familiar with that an improvement district is used for? Sure. If you're living in an area that was annexed by a city, for instance, you might be opted in uh, to a water district where everyone that is served by a new water infrastructure, um, clean water coming into your house and wastewater leaving your house, uh, you you don't have a choice. Um, those are involuntary districts, and that's the way that we've often paid for um, the uh, broadband networks. Uh, that's a way that we've uh, often paid for water infrastructure, for instance. Um, and um, the interesting thing about the Ammon model is that you can opt in. So if you would like service, you can pay a one-time fee for the cost of connecting your home, which might be on the order of $2,500 to $3,500. Or more commonly, you would have a 20-year assessment on your home and you would pay it off every month, you know, $15, $16 at a time. And so that's just a part of the bill. If you move, and this is something that you know all about, John, from the property assessed clean energy, the PACE programs, um, if you move, then the new homeowner, they get the benefit of the fiber, but they also have to deal with the costs of that uh, infrastructure. So it's very equitable also. And Ammon just breaks this, this out and the, the, the cost of these projects out in very intelligent ways that, um, that really make sense and allow communities to get into this without taking a lot of risk, without borrowing a whole lot of money um, for um, everyone in the community. Um, we're advocates of communities doing what works, so I don't want to say that one is necessarily better than the other. But it's really great to have options for communities to pick what's best for them. Well, Chris, I just want to say your that video that you did on Ammon was so impressive in not only showing access to internet service, but also in showing how a community can do economic development. I mean, one of the most astounding things in that video was the, the aerial view of the street and all the businesses that are attracted to Ammon versus outside the city where they don't have high-speed internet. So it's, it's an economic development tool. And it was also dealing with security issues, as I recall. The different agencies within the local government were connected and able to respond to these other issues of high priority for that community. Right. The road that you're, you're mentioning is called a hit road, and it divides Idaho Falls from Ammon. And one of the interesting things is actually Idaho Falls does have cable service, and they even have uh, what we call dark fiber, which I'm not going to get into. But Ammon has so much better access on their side that there's just been a tremendous amount of development there. But yes, there's public safety applications. And, and a very hard question that we had to wrestle with was um, the, this way that they've dealt with public safety has to do with school shootings. And and trying to figure out how to talk about that in a respectful way uh, without just appearing to you know um, get overboard with it I think was was challenging but uh, um, we're, we're we're so happy with the way the video turned out and the way our, our partners helped us to to put it together 
But we want to switch gears now. And I'm, I'm curious, Brenda, you're on the show so rarely. I'd love to get into um, some of the stuff that you're working on in this brand new report that you call Yes in My Backyard. Um, tell us about this report and then let's talk about some of the small towns that are doing really cool things around composting. Yeah, we just released this new report called Yes in My Backyard, Yimby, a home composting guide for local government. And it's basically going to help other local governments, small towns, large towns, uh, launch their own at-home composting programs to encourage residents to do composting at home through worms, backyard bins, um, and any number of other options. And one of the benefits is saving money. And there's not a lot of upfront investment in doing these types of programs, which I think is a real plus, especially if you're in a small town and you don't have a composting facility where you can send your food scraps and yard waste. Uh, starting a home composting program is a great way to uh, begin uh, recovering food scraps. You know, I think that this whole idea of composting through worms provides a nice little wordplay. Um, compost does actually all go through the worms. The composting does, after all, go through the worms. Worms are wonderful. They're like little factories of beneficial microbes. And so they produce the best uh, worm caps, castings, and worm composts that are so full of uh, microbial life. Um, it's better than even hot composting in terms of what it can do for your plants. And one of the reasons that we did this report is there's been quite a growth in the country in uh, households interested in, make in growing their own food at home. Now, a recent study said one in three households are now growing at least some food in home. So we're trying to harness that trend to show you can produce your own soil amendments as well and save your local government's money. I love one of the programs we documented is um, Orlando, Florida, where their marketing campaign was Get Dirty With Your Valentine. They launched it on Valentine's Day, and they got so much great publicity and marketing around their campaign that I think they gave out 3,000 home composting bins the first year. It's been quite one of uh, an amazing program. And then they expanded that to Get Dirty With Your Neighbor. So one of the tips for replication is certainly be innovative and think outside the box. Brenda, I'm curious if you can tell us or remind us really why local governments would, would care about this. I mean, it seems like something nice for people to do, um, you know, if they, if they want to do this. Uh, but what are some actual benefits to local governments if they do increase this home composting? Yeah. So one of the Biggest benefits of home composting for local government is you no longer have to collect uh, food scraps and yard waste at the curb every week and handle it, whether it's your own composting facility or at a landfill or incinerator if that's what you're opting to do. So for every ton of uh, yard waste and food scraps that are at home composting, you're saving the collection cost, you're saving the hauling cost, you're saving the processing cost, and often there are high tipping fees. Give you an example, Chevrolet, Maryland in Prince George's County is a small town of 6,500. Uh, they invested $4,000 in providing uh, discounted home composting bins. Over 10 years, they estimate that that 4000 investment will turn into $60,000 um, over the 10-year life of the bins they gave out. And they have calculated that a quarter ton 
of organic material, food scraps, and yard waste is diverted per household per year. So that can add up to a lot of savings over the lifetime of the bins that a local community gives away. For people who are organizing around greenhouse gases, I think there are implications in the the home composting for that as well. Uh, In fact, it's been 10 years now since you released a major report on this subject, and seems like it's as relevant now as ever. Yeah, so the report we wrote 10 years ago, Stop Trashing the Climate, is sadly as relevant today as it was uh, 10 years ago. And um, when you send food scraps or rotting material to a landfill, it produces methane, which is a very highly potent greenhouse gas. Um, And when you produce compost, which is a soil amendment, and you add that back into soil, you're sequestering carbon. So it's a win-win for the climate, for climate stability. Um, But if you're concerned about uh, reducing trash, if you want healthy soil, and if you're concerned about jobs, um, composting is uh, has myriad benefits. We estimate that for every 10,000 tons that you send to a landfill, you may sustain one job. But if you send that 10,000 tons a year to a commercial composting facility, you're sustaining four full-time equivalent jobs. And then when you're producing finished compost, and now you're selling that, uh, and it's supporting landscapers or companies that are now doing green roofs or uh, green rain gardens and the like, then you're sustaining uh, an additional six jobs for every 10,000 tons of of, uh, material you're diverting from disposal. So climate, jobs, soil, Uh, Check, check, check. Win, win, win. Brenda, when you were doing the research for this report, uh, you know, I have to assume that you knew a lot of these things, but I'm curious if there was anything that surprised you, you know, anything that just came out of the blue and you didn't see coming despite all of your, your, uh, your history on this subject. I think the most surprising thing is the lack of attention to actually home composting. Over the years, it used to be more popular in like the 80s and 90s. And since the um, advent of more curbside collection programs, households, um, we're seeing less attention paid to home composting. And I think this report is really a wake-up call that, you know, it's the first step uh, building a a culture of composting know-how at the local level. You know, and on the the small towns, I'll just say that uh, when we did look at curbside collection, which is increasing. Uh, We did a study uh, last year, and we documented how many cities, communities, counties are now collecting food scraps at curbside. And that grew from 2.4 households served just three years ago to now more than 5 million households served in 20 states. And most of those programs are in small towns. And so this is... um, something that is growing, but to add curbside collection is an additional cost, it's additional labor, it's additional trucks, Um, cheaper than disposal, but still one of the things I think if you're a small town and you're looking at adding composting, you can start with home composting, you can start with a drop-off program. Uh, Falls Church, Virginia was one of the communities we we documented. It's a town of of 14,000, a bedroom community of the greater Washington, D.C. area. Uh, They started with collecting food scraps at a farmer's market, and they had so much interest in people demanding like, hey, we want to drop 
drop-off that's permanent, seven days a week, that we can come and drop off our material any day of the week. That They let out a contract. They contracted with a small company called Veteran Compost that hires uh, returning veterans, and uh, they have a permanent drop-off site. That was so popular that they decided to offer curbside collection, and when they surf surveyed the households that signed up for curbside, uh, most of the households said, yeah, we started at the farmer's market. So one lesson I can tell you for if you're a small town is feel free, start small. There's no one way to do this. Um, start with home composting. Start with a drop-off. Farmer's markets are great. The way that they rolled out their curbside program, I thought, was really thinking outside the box. They uh, actually issued another RFP for the curbside, and they uh, awarded that to a separate small-scale company called Compost Crew, and they did a shared savings with that company. So a household would only pay, say, $6 a month, and the city paid the rest. But So they were able to offer the program with a very small cost to their residents uh, without increasing their solid waste budget. So again, lots of fabulous examples from small towns all across the country. So let's let's shift gears a little bit to talk about one other um, way in which uh, small amounts of savings or expenditures uh, from each household uh, really add up across the community. Uh, I think that brings us all the way back to one hundred million dollars. So Decorah, Iowa, pretty great place. I think of it because I get to go through Rochester and uh, get me some of the great barbecue of Minnesota from John Hardy's, which is one of my favorite things in this world. So John, tell us why other people should care about Decorah. Uh, Decorah is a great small community, about 8,000 folks, northeastern Iowa, uh, pretty close to the Minnesota border. Um, it stands out for a couple of reasons. It's a home to Luther College. It's a liberal arts college that kind of, in a way, uh, both got a start in and uh, was motivated by the community's focus on sustainability. It has a wind turbine and a s set of solar panels already that help power the college and cover much of its energy use. Um, but the community, that $100 million figure, is really, uh, I think, representative of the way the community thinks about energy issues, which is how do we keep more of our dollars in our local community? Um, and they, and, and I think that's a focus that really many small communities and, and large communities share uh, across the country, and and what their their first approach to that was this notion of uh, an energy district. So it kind of brought um, from uh, it borrowed from the con the concept of soil and conservation districts uh, back during the Great Depression, uh, which uh, implemented a lot of agricultural practices to help keep soil fertile and uh, to increase yields and to sustain farming communities. And their idea was, what is it that we can do to keep more of that hundred million dollars local? And so. After the Great Recession in 2008, they got some initial federal funding, and their focus was essentially, how do we help residents and businesses in the community keep more dollars local? And they've been able to do assessments on more than 600 facilities, 600 properties in the community, and help to retain uh, more than $3 million in savings just for those users, uh, $3 million that now circulates in the local economy. Now, I think that's really, that's really interesting, John, but... Um, what I'm really interested in and what's really relevant for this show in particular is is um, uh, building local power. And you have, I think, the re the most relevant um, building local power story here about what's happening in Decorah in order to, to make all this, in some ways, to supercharge this dynamic that you're talking about. 
What has happened in Decorah and in the surrounding community, and again, Luther College has played a role here, is that they've continued to want to increase their self-reliance around energy. They wanted to install a larger solar array. They wanted to get more of their energy from renewable resources, keep more of their dollars local. Uh, but they were being stymied by the electric utility. Uh, Decorah is served by an investor-owned utility. It's headquartered in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, it's you know Very few of its shareholders are residents of Decorah, and, and the company is um, generally operated in a way to benefit the shareholders primarily, and it has often been hostile to the kinds of local energy production that folks in Decorah are interested in. And so that um, led to another initiative. So the energy district was one way to kind of nibble at the edges of this problem. What residents uh, of Decorah have done is said, you know, we want to go the next step. We want to talk more about having control over our energy economy. How, we want more control over keeping energy dollars local. We want uh, you know, less resistance from an outside entity like an electric utility. And so they've talked about uh, creating a municipal electric utility, having a city-owned utility where they have control over where the energy purchases would come from and the kinds of fees that would be charged to customers who install renewable energy and, and essentially, you know, more control over what their where their energy dollars are going. And they started this off uh, in 2017. I mean, this is the culmination of decades of conversation uh, with a study looking at what it would mean to form this municipal electric company. And their initial findings were that they could get more renewable energy, more local renewable energy. Iowa's an enormous wind resource, also a fairly good solar resource. Uh, in fact, I forgot to mention earlier that the Winnesheek Energy District uh, helped install so much solar that if you uh, measured it against most of the large cities across the country, this county uh, would have ranked number two in solar per capita. Um, so they had been making remarkable progress for a community in the upper Midwest uh, and, and with not the greatest solar resource in the country. Um, but they did this feasibility study for the municipal utility and found they could save about 30% on their energy bills over continuing to take service from, this, uh, from the incumbent monopoly company. And so it created this campaign. It created this big movement in the city, uh, this big conversation about, is it possible for us to take over the utility company? Um, you know, and, and do we have this opportunity to localize control uh, that can continue to extend our interest in, in more energy self-reliance? So, John, how did that, what happened there? How did that campaign work out? So the campaign culminated in a, in a referendum. It was on the ballot on uh, the first week of May uh, this year. Um, the locals were outspent by the utility company four to one. Uh, the utility company spent more than $120,000 uh, to try to convince people to stay with their more expensive uh, service. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that the local organizers came short by three votes uh, there was initially a five-vote spread. There was a recount. Two additional votes were found in favor of the city-owned utility, but they came three votes shy of the a number necessary for the uh, community to move forward, uh, at least at this time. Uh, Iowa state law prevents them from revisiting the issue on the ballot um, within four years. Uh, but but the, what I would say is that I agree with what the local organizers said in the, in the paper afterwards in the Decora News. They said essentially... You know, what we've learned is that we can have this very fruitful and thoughtful conversation in our community about what our options are and, and what we can do, uh, and that there are many other ways uh, that we can explore 
for helping to keep more energy dollars local, that this wasn't the beginning and the end. This was part of the conversation and a continuation of the conversation. Uh, and and people are going to keep thinking about that opportunity there to, to save more money by localizing energy. So they might not be going whole hog right now and having a city take over of the electric company. Uh, but I think Decora has shown how small towns uh, can really organize around these energy issues to get you know really impressive results in terms of building out solar uh, in ways that save customers money uh, and helping people reduce their energy bills um, and, and that it doesn't take a big city to do big things. There you have it. Whether it's broadband, local energy, local composting, you can save money, provide better services, create local jobs, and protect the environment. So think outside the box and go local. Signing off now from the Building Local Power podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, we're nearing the end of our fiscal year, and if you go to ilsr.org donate, you can help us out with a gift that helps produce this podcast, get us great guests, and produce original research on the way monopolies are impacting our economy. Once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and me, Nick Stumelanger. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Nick Stumelanger, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Building Local Power.